we are so delighted that one of our favorite guests from prior episodes, Elia Zhang, has come back to join us again. Now, for those of you who listened to our prior episode and kindly emailed us about how much you enjoyed it, I think Elia's episode got us the most emails of any episode we have had, um, thank you. Thank you for having uh, done that. And today we're asking Elia to dig a little deeper into the history of Chinese debts to provide some background. And I, I think I'm speaking for Mark as well here. Our understanding, our very limited understanding of Chinese sovereign debts prior to the modern era is largely sort of grounded, and although grounded is probably not the word given how little I know, but but it's grounded in the borrowing of imperial China from Western locations, primarily vis-a-vis individuals and institutions. But Elia's book reveals that there is a large portion of defaulted Chinese debts, maybe the largest portion, that's not vis-a-vis individuals and instead is borrowing from China, much of it wrapped up in the period 1938 to, say, 1946, where we have uh, the Japanese invasion of parts of China and World War II in the background. So that's what we're going to primarily ask Elia to tell us the story of. It's an amazing story worthy of multiple novels, perhaps. Uh, but without further ado, first, Elia, welcome back to our podcast. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, me too. Thank you, Mark. Thank you so much for having me. It's such an honor to come back again. Oh, you are very kind. So, Elia, uh, might you just give us a little bit of an overview that contrasts the debts that we were the primary debts, the debts of imperial China to individual investors, the ones that, you know, there are the famous cases uh, with people trying to individual litigants trying to recover from the Chinese governments, the uh, Johnson or Jackson case, and these other debts that you talk about in your book chapters uh, that I was completely unaware of. So, if you don't mind, could we trouble you for that overview? Yeah, of course. And so in terms of dollar loans to China, or we call it, you know, like the sovereign borrowing of modern China from United States, and specifically it's a total of 112 loans. So we can look at it by number, we can look at it by time, or we can look at it by size. And so the imperial bonds, like the Huguan 1911 Huguan Railway Loan, that later became the subject of the 1979 the Jackson versus PRC case, and that compared to the later ones, 
it's like a drop in a bucket. If we put it in specific numbers in terms of sites, we can it's it's suffice to say that imperial Chinese bonds, what we call defaulted imperial Chinese bonds, accounted for less than two to three percent of the lending total of China from the states. And on the other hand, the giant, what we call the elephant in the room, is China's wartime borrowing from American government. So here I mean American government, not American public or American business. American government and that accounted for more than 90% of the total borrowing. And that borrowing took place between literally just in less than 10 years between 1938 to 1948. So can we, um, there's so little that I know about this, uh, this context. And as Mitu points out, what I do know is um, relates to the the lending by the imperial Chinese government. Can we sort of divide it into eras? The, the way I have come to think of it after reading some chapters from your book is that we can we can sort of think about the the post-imperial Chinese era as lending maybe between um, lending up to say 1938 and then thinking of post 1938 say to 1945 lending uh, as a uh, as a different era in itself is that right and can you give us the the sort of overview of how we should think about the types of loans and the types of lenders that uh, China is accessing during this period yes of course so I think we can use uh, three years you know, as, uh, as our bookmark, 1911, 1937, and 1949. So 1911 is the end of imperial China and the beginning of Republican China. So all the imperial bonds, you know, we, uh, we talk about fought into this imperial period before 1911. And then from 1912 and all the way to 1937, and during this time, China had civil war, but it was not invaded. Yeah, so this is what we call relatively peace time, the Chinese Republic time. And during this time, most of the dollar loans from the United States come in the form of business loans. In other words, Chinese government can just you know buy more locomotives from the Baltimore locomotives, and then they didn't pay. That's also considered a, a sovereign sovereign loan. Then, but the, the, the wartime loan we talk about uh, took place, we can use 1937, the invasion of Japan as the starting point. And but for the ending point, uh, that instead of 1945, I would like to end it by 1949. Because when we actually look into the details, the the dollar loans that China got, you know, after 1945 is, is also om- almost equal in size compared to, you know, the previous several years. So, so that's why I would like to divide into a period of before 1911, 1912, 1937, and 1938 to uh, because my memory is so bad, but the early loans in 1938 seem to be uh, the product of the relationship between uh, one of the, and you can correct me, I think of one of the heroes of your story, K.P. Chen, and his relationship 
with Henry Morgenthau Jr., who is Secretary of the Treasury at that point. And these are loans that were backed with solid collateral that, if my understanding is correct, uh, the Chinese government, thanks to KP Chen's effort, efforts, really worked hard to pay back uh, the U.S. government on. So can we start with just that? Even though they were they they were fully repaid, they seem to have set the stage for what comes later. Yes, yeah. I'm so I'm so glad that that, that you met, you mentioned K P Chen. Yes, he is he is my hero. Yeah, and he is my hero. And then now, uh, see, he's also the prime example uh, of that when everything was taken away from you and you can always start something new. Just jumped later, you know, like despite all his efforts for the China U.S. relations, after the Korean War broke out, his entire personal asset was frozen by the U.S. government, and then so they couldn't his business couldn't almost couldn't sustain. So instead, he started a new business. He is actually later become a founder of Chinese Travel, the largest Chinese uh, travel agency. Anyway, so that's a side note. So come back to here. Come back to the the wartime borrowing between 1938 to 1949. And yes, and I would say between 1938 to 1940, all the way to the summer of 1940. And during that time, two loans took place. One is the Tang Oil loan. The other is the Ting loan. Both loans were taken from the China. Government were taken by the Chinese government from the Export Import Bank of America. Those are solid loans, and it's a result, you know, it's a result of a personal trust between Henry Morgenthau at the time, the Secretary of Treasury, and KP Chen, the founder of the Shanghai Business Bank. Can we talk about those loans a little bit? Because you distinguish them as you call them. Uh, in some ways, the only, uh, I think the term is ideal loan. Um, I think of them as um, arm's length. I think of them as loans where commercial considerations seemed to dominate the terms of the loan as opposed to strategic considerations uh, uh, informing the U.S. government's decision to lend. Can you just talk about the terms and structure of those loans and what makes them unique in the broader scheme of U.S. lending to China? Yes. So as... um... As, as you can imagine that when I try to um, when I try to race through all the archives on these 112 loans and then when I start a project I already know the result the result of this is that despite all the money landed at the end of the date each side left unsatisfied and then the Chinese side pointed finger at the United States and said you know your lending sometimes is poor in timing and then and then also you know left us little options. And meanwhile, the American side will point finger to the Chinese side that I lent you so much money. Where did it go and what did it accomplish? Yeah. So it's almost a, a, a brief a, a highlight for me to run into two out of this 112 loans that which I call the Tang Oil loan and the Ting Oil, they are ideal loans because they were paid back. They were paid back when China was at its poorest and they were able to to pay back for two reasons. One is, is contract, yeah. And then they have the most comprehensive contract 
you know, in terms of dollar loans to China. So every all the time tonnage, you know, were being stimulated stipulated. And then also another reason is because you have a important personality here. Yeah. You have a person when when infrastructure was lacking, personality matters more. And then in these two loans in particular, Mr. KP Chen, and then he used his personal credibility to make sure those two loans were paid off. Unfortunately, you know, the the, the several dozens loan up to that, which were not handled by him, in the end, all turned out to be uh, unpaid. So would you like me to go into more details about the Tang Oil loan and the Ting loans? Yeah, sure. No, I mean, there, there's... <laughs> I'm sorry, Mark. <laughs> sorry, there, too. I mean, there's... The, I mean, I'm just still stunned at the story of the efforts that were undertaken uh, to get the materials uh, to the U.S., uh, I mean, uh, yes, please tell, tell us the part of the story that you you find the most intriguing since I, I'm I'm eagerly awaiting uh, the movie a version of this. <laughs> the Burma Road, Tang Oil up the Burma Road, up and down the Burma Road. So, so yes. So the situation we are looking at is that in by year 1939, um, China is broke. You know, China is broke because um. Because before that, maritime customs was China's largest source of revenue, and that's gone. That's literally 100% gone, because you just need to take a look at Chinese map, and you will know that the entire nationalist regime was landlocked. All American tax customs has been taken away by the Japanese. And the South, you know, the South revenue is also gone. And meanwhile, the government has to fight a war on its own with close to no assistance from anyone. So in 1939, KP was 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 entrusted with tasks that he had to go to the United States and to, to, to get money, you know, to, to borrow. But but what collateral, isn't it? What does China even have to borrow? There is no gold, there's no silver, and then there is no mineral resources, you know, very, very little. To be honest, the only thing that the nationalist regime had is just a couple of rocks and a couple of, and, and a, a lot of forests. So the capitan's job is he need to find some hidden charger, you know, have some hidden charger. And then the hidden charger he found is tongue oil, tongue oil. So this is this kind of spe special oil from the tan trees, which you can uh, use it for waterproof materials. So this is, you know, before the invention of the plastic. And then this is tongue oil was this essential war area or war material that you need to apply to the service of the canvas. canvas. So he found a hidden, what we call this hidden charger. But meanwhile, they still need to find a way to borrow because uh, the 1934 Johnson Default Act specifically stipulated that because China had not paid back yet, paid back for haven't redeemed you know, all those imperial bonds, so China cannot borrow for the United States again. So, so even after getting, you know, finding sort of hidden charger, the KP Chen still need to find a way to go across, go bypass what we call a legal, yeah, the legal hurdle to get it. So what they did is that they found an escape clause in the 1934, the Johnson uh, Default Act. I wonder if you heard of this escape clause. In, no, uh, I don't think I have. Go ahead, please tell me. Yeah. So we know that 1934, the Johnson, the, the Johnson Default Act, is, it was a response to the global debt crisis, or in particular Latin American and then also um, European debt crisis in the 1930s. 
So American government public were, were angry. So that's why this act was was passed and to say, you know, all these defaulters, they are not going to raise a cent. They are not going to cheat another cent from the American public again unless they pay back. And however, at that time, there was one maverick, which is Russia. Russia technically was a defaulter, but was, that was way back in 1917. And then in the 1930s, while, you know, while the Johnson Act was passed, and then the Russians, they were enticing Washington with potential imports of American goods up to a billion dollars. So when the Johnson Act was drafted, they were keeping in mind that we have to find a way if actually the Russians, you know, are willing to open their market, we have to find a way for the Russians to, to borrow from us again. So that's why an escape clause was inserted, excluding public corporations created under the authority of Congress or controlled majorly by the U.S. government from the law's restrictions. In other words, is that it will be legal for a public corporation like the Export-Import Bank to extend loans to defaulted foreign governments. That's so interesting. Yeah, I, I so I had not known of that exception. Um, another sign of how little attention I paid to the Johnson Act, among among other things. This sounds like a good transition point to start thinking about the the wartime loans. So there is this uh, kind of swell of lending from the United States um, starting after 1940, as of course the. The United States is interested in sort of using China to advance its strategic interests in the Pacific. And you have this great line in the chapter of your book um, dealing with this um, surge in U.S. lending. The, the line, I think, let me pull it up, that the seeds of destruction of Sino-U.S. relations were sown in the grand celebration of big American loans to China. And so this is, it's a, a really fascinating and I think consequential era. And so can you tell us um, what happens in the lending relationship uh, here and why it winds up sowing the seeds of destruction of the Sino-U.S. relationship? Yes, yeah, that yeah, that's great that you, you remember that line because that's something I feel very strongly about. And then and also as Chinese, when I look at this history, I just this sense of you know unfortunate this sense of you know what have you know what should have. So um so yes, and when we talk about the two loans by KP Chen, you know, I I call them two ideal loans because they were payback in advance because KP Chen swore to Morgan Saul, which he considered a personal friend, that I will pay back, you know. And then for that reason, he literally, he, he, he was all out, yeah. And he streamlined the truck transportation business on, on Burma Road, up and down, up and down, so that the town oil can be transported all the way from, you know, the, the heart of the forest. And then to India, and then through the through 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 the Pacific, and then eventually to United States. So, however, um, what happened? What changed after September nineteen thirty nine? After night in on September nineteen thirty nine, and then specifically, so on time, September third nineteen thirty nine, and then, and Henry Morgenstern simply received a phone call, you know, from at the time, you know, Secretary of State, you know, Mister Howe, and say. We are going to make a loan to China, and then I need you to make it happen within 24 hours. And when we look at this, when historians look at this, because you, I just spent, you know, I just 
comb those resources, I know that KP Chen, you know, spent the entire 14 months and then finally tried to get two loans, each of them $25 million. But then on September 3rd, 1939, this one phone call and just say, give them $25 million. And that's only the start of things. Six months later, another phone call, give them $50 million. That's the metal loan. And then a few months later, another $50 million for currency stabilization. The climax is March 1942, and there was a $500 million cash loan. Yeah, $500 million cash loan, a loan that literally has no, no clause, you know, no stipulations. So this is what I see is the seeds of destruction. I'm going to make this short. It's because um, this is the time that we, when we see that the infrastructure, you know, really receded while, you know, politics and then personality completely took over. The subtitle of my book is called Tragedy of Infrastructure and uh, Personality. The, the real tragedy I see is that despite the amount and then also the duration of American lending to China, I didn't see through and through, I didn't see a stable infrastructure channel that can really, you know, responsibly move American money to China for good use. And the, the best hope was the Export-Import Bank. KP Chen, he started as president. You know, he finally escaped class. He found a collateral. And then he established two responsible loans with the Export-Import Bank. So Export-Import Bank should be this infrastructure. But if you look at the later ones, like for instance, the five I cited, none of them come from the Export-Import Bank. They literally were just either went through by congressional bill or by a direct appropriation from the secretary uh, from the from the secretary of treasury so this uh, tragedy is yeah go ahead i i just wanted to, to uh, ask a follow up question about that 500 million loan because um as you describe it, there there's sort of no repayment terms, no stipulations on what's going to happen with the money. It's just a um, kind of giant uh, pot of money given to the government to use at its discretion. And then, would you just tell us what happens to that money? Yes, what happened to that money, isn't it? Yeah, and. Uh... That the high the five hundred million uh, cash loan, and then when I when I do my research on that, I keep shaking my head. That's is it's yeah. I keep sighing and shaking my head. So five hundred million dollars, we have to comprehend the weight of this money. In nineteen forty two, and uh, a bucket of wheat cost twelve cents, and then a gallon of gasoline cost forty cents. So when I talk, when we talk about five hundred million dollars. And then $500 million, and together with another at a time, the $200 million uh, currency loan from Britain, was literally enough, you know, to become the foreign reserves of all Chinese currency circulated out there. In other words, this $500 million in cash would have been able to stir the inflation in China. At the end of the day, the nationalists the Nationalist Party, what we call the Nationalist Government, you know, they lost China. In my opinion, it's not because they lose to the communists. It's because they lost to the inflation. Yeah, they didn't control the inflation. And because the FAB, the Chinese FAB, the value of Chinese FAB, and then it inflated, you're probably not going to believe it, but it de-inflated 
200,000 times between 1934 to 1949. Mm. I wonder if you heard of this kind of inflation rate before. So, I, sorry, go on. <laughs> I, I didn't. I didn't mean to interrupt you. I was going to ask a little more about uh, some of the details, but please finish your sentence. Yes. No. So come back to Mark's question. So 500, 500 million. In my opinion, the best use of that 500 million, you know, cash, no stipulation, and. Uh, just as a final exercise, I even sit down to 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 to, to just count count how long that, that long contract is. You know, usually we know that the, the contract long will go page after page after page, isn't it? Yeah. So I went back to the original Chinese contract. It's just one and a half page, and I sit down and count the words. It's a total of five hundred and twenty-seven words for five hundred million dollars. It's also literally like one word, <laughs> one word for one million dollars there. So then, this is this is um. This, this is where the tragedy starts, and where you have this kind of cash. And then you went out without any plan, without any stipulation, and then it really ended up in the wrong hand. Instead of the $500 million, $220 million were used to buy gold. But those gold bars, and as we mentioned in the previous podcasts were all shipped to Taiwan in 1949 and almost became the last, you know, last <clears throat> straw on the camel's back to trigger the communist default in 1949. So that's 220 gold, yeah, gold bars for Taiwan. And then another 200 million is to float what we call US dollar, dollar serving certificate, you know, in the name of curbing inflation, but but ended up, you know, ended up became uh, a profit making scheme for a very small handful of people. You know, so as I as I mentioned in my note, ninety percent of it, even though in theory the subscription period, you know, it went it went about six to seven months, but the general public actually had no access to buy this, you know, precious dollar uh, dollar dominated denominated saving certificate. 90% of it were bought out by, you know, a handful of people in the last three days. And then essentially, it became their cash. Then the third one. Oh, do you have a question before I go to the third one? The third big use of this money. No, no, go on. And then I'll ask my question. This is fascinating. Okay, so first, go bar, you know, go bar for Taiwan. And then the second one is that um, dollar saving certificate for crooks. Okay, I'm going to use that word here for crooks. and. The, the, the last one is five, $55 million, $55 million. And this is the part that I actually feel almost, almost, almost the most, the saddest part about it. $55 million, which is more than the total amount that KP Chen, you know, borrowed and returned at the beginning, you know, at the beginning of, of the war. This was used to do one thing, to print the Chinese money that became instantly worthless, the Chinese fabi. 20 million were used to purchase the machine to print the bills, and 35 million were used to buy the materials that were used to print the bills. At the end of the day, even though the Chinese fabi, you know, became instantly worthless, yeah, almost when the time when you print, but it was actually the most expensive, yeah, the most expensive, you know, in terms of cost, production cost, the most expensive bill in the world. 
You know why? Because this is the way you do it. China was actually in war. The nationalist regime was landlocked. So the bill has to be printed abroad and then to be shipped into China to be used. So in this process, first, half of the bill will print in the United States, half of the bill will print in England. And then they need to be bundled up, put on a ship, and then sail all the way to India. Yeah, and sail all the way to India. And then once they got to India, they have to move, be moved by rail or trucks to mountains, northeast India, and then piled into American airplanes. And then these American airplanes will through these bundles of bills over the Himalayas to Chongqing. So these are high quality bills. You know, they were printed on sturdy rack paper supplied by, supply, you know, by quality machines. Yeah. But those bills, when they arrive China, they it's already become worthless. Like, like you know, the one dollar bill, you know, one yuan or two yuan and three yuan, and people don't even bother to use it as toilet paper. Yeah. So out of this, by fifty five million dollars just to print money that become useless. And that's why it saddens me so much when I look at this five hundred million dollar loan. Wow. So, Elia, just. Just so that we um, have this clear, and then I want to, I'm hoping we can go to the other debts that uh, China incurs uh, up to 1949. But this transition from very careful, collateralized lending that KP Chen oversees into this no contract, no collateral, or very little or fictitious collateral, uh, undocumented loans that starts with the phone call from Cordell Hull. I'm presuming that this all has to do with World War II and the U.S. position in World War II vis-a-vis the Japanese, because in the early years, if I uh, remember correctly from your book chapters, uh, the U.S. is very worried about offending the Japanese. And so China sort of all on its own, fighting the Japanese. And then at some point, uh, of course, we know about Pearl Harbor, but at some point, the Japanese irritate the U.S. even before Pearl Harbor. And so the politics change, and it's almost as if, to my reading, increasingly money is thrown at the nationalist government, and that seems to induce this wave of corruption uh, on the Chinese side. The Americans just throw the money without caring about it, and uh, on the Chinese side, this is a recipe for corruption. And our, our hero, KP Chen, sort of gets sidelined. Also, he he is sick and not able to do this and is unwilling to do this. And poor Morgenthau, who wants to be careful in the lending, is no longer able to be that. So I, I might, not have, might have gotten this wrong, but I, I want the part of the politics part of the story before we move to the next set of lending. Yes. So come back to this. And then the what we call it, the windfall started. It's not because what happened in China, but what happened in France. 
And then this is uh, when we look at World War II and when we look when we read the military history of World War II and we know this Europe first strategy. Yeah, the European um, theater, of course, is the foremost theater, you know, for American troops. So why September 1940 will come that phone call? It's because that day the Japanese troops uh, entered Haifang, in other words, entered French Indochina. They started taking over French Indochina. So it was because of that and the agenda, you know, the agenda from the president to the secretary Howe is they want to make sure they want, they want, they want a big American loan to China to be announced, you know, within 24 hours, thereby symbolically signify that American dollars could flow to China faster than the Japanese troops move into Indochina. So you probably get an idea for that one. And then the second one is what we call the, the next one, the big, the $500 million one, of course, was Pearl Harbor. So yes, you are correct. You know, this what we call, you know, the political landing started from September 1940, and mostly because what happened in, uh, in either in Europe or in French Indochina. And then it continues. Um, I, maybe this is too quick a transition. So tell me if if I'm leaving out part of the story, and we shouldn't we shouldn't do the transition. But it, I, I'm interested in the lend lease program that follows, which I I think, in terms of the dollar amount, is the largest uh, volume of U.S. lending. And you know, I guess I had some sense that this Lend-Lease program was uh, was in effect. I, I, I knew that there, there was a great deal of, um, uh, of lending in, in that sense between the US and China, but I didn't, I was stunned by the, the volume and also by, uh, by the kind of broader story you tell about that Lend-Lease program. So can we focus on that for a little bit? Yes. So, we can switch to we can talk about landlist program just for for the sake of uh, just to a quick review for for the sake of the listener here. Let's quickly recap. You know, American loans to China, and then Tang Oil loan twenty five million, Ting loan twenty five million. Those are the good loans by KP Chen. And after that, a strand of political loans. You know, Tungsten loans twenty five million, Metal loan. 15 million currency stabilization loan, 15 million, and then the 500 million cash loan, you know, as the climax, yeah, of the lending there. But lending is another kind of beast. It actually started around the same time as the 500 million cash loan, the land lease. I would like to just point out two things about the, the land lease, American land lease to China. Yeah. The first, the first one is that the land lease, you know, to China. If the American, if we go by the American figure, it was it's literally the single largest injection of American money into China, into China throughout the entire Chinese history. Yeah, I'm actually including today. You know, you can you can look at the 1980s and 90s. It, it, it never amount to that size. So this is one thing. So because by the American figure is $1.63 billion. However, I would like to point out on the Chinese side, never agree to this number. The Chinese side, if you look at the nationalist government, they come up as their own balance sheet. And you probably won't believe this. So their balance sheet amount to about $107 million. 
So we are looking at $1 billion discrepancy here. And where did that $1 billion go? And that's, uh, that's, the, that's the thing I'm writing right now for my land list article. So this first thing about land list, the size. And then the second one I would like to point about point point about, about land lease is we think about land lease is for war, it's for World War II, isn't it? Yeah. So that's why Great Britain, France, USSR, and China were the four major receivers of land lease during World War II all the way until September 1945. However, land lease program did go a little bit more after the war because all the receivers they did need you know like substantial materials to 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 tie them through the difficult the first initial years after the war but when we look at the expenses of post-world war ii land lease and we are going to see the money that's spent on china alone is almost equal to the other 38 nations combined so in other words, is land lease was not just spent for China during World War II. It also became a major injection of money into China when Chinese were fighting the civil war. So those are the two things I would, I would like to point out about land lease. Its size and its um its its unusual large portion after World War II. So, Elia, um, I'm so sad we don't have a couple more hours to talk about this because there's just so much to discuss. But I have uh, a couple more questions that I'm hoping we can at least touch upon before we close, since we're getting close to the end of time. The first has to do with the Chinese borrowing and Mark is going to laugh at me at this, but I'm going to ask anyway, the, the Chinese nationalist borrowing to fund the war efforts, and this comes back to borrowing from individuals again. Uh, in, in every basic securities law course, we teach a case, it's often the first case that we teach on uh, the Chinese benevolent associations in the United States helping sell Chinese bonds to individuals again in the 1940s to support the war effort. And here, the U.S. government actually steps in to constrain uh, and stop uh, some of those sales, which seems to little be, be a little bit at odds with the pro-China sentiment of the U.S. government. So I'm wondering whether there, there is a story here, but I'm also wondering about the general Chinese borrowing from overseas Chinese that occurs during this time. And uh, what happened to those loans? I assume they were all defaulted on as well. Yes, the individuals. So we are talking about the patriotic bonds. And so starting from 1937, almost as soon as the, J the Japanese invaded, yeah, and then the government tried to borrow from its own people. The result is they can got very little domestically because you can imagine that most people, you know, are fleeing the war. So um, the government tried to raise funds from the overseas Chinese communities, specifically the one in United States, Canada, and then Philippines, Malaysia, in other words, North America and Southeast Asia. So that's why three series of bombs 
And then it's called, which is called Liberty Bond, Construction Bond, and Aviation Bond. They were floated uh, in uh, in dollar forms. You know, they floated as dollar denominated forms, and then were trying to were promoted among Chinese communities in this you know overseas regions. And then the case you are referring to, I think, is the one the the, the 1940 and 1941 the SEC versus the Chinese Benevolence Association case, where this association, as a chari charitable organization, they didn't sell the bond, but they helped to promote the bond. In other words, they be, they acted as the almost like the middleman between overseas ordinary overseas Chinese residents. And then the Bank of China in, 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 for instance, in cities like New York, you know, and Manila. And so they help to collect the money and then hand it to the Bank of China. And then the Bank of China give them the bombs and they give the bombs to the purchase, purchase of the bombs. But this call the attention of SEC. And then please correct me because you are the, you two are the, the expert, you know, on this. And my understanding when I read this is that the SEC uh, forbade them from selling the bombs and because those, you know, they said the Chinese association are working as uh, the underwriter. And then that violate the Johnson law. Yeah, because, you know, China haven't paid back. Yeah. And then they cannot sell new bombs there. So I think that's the lawsuit. The lawsuit went from the district court to the second circuit, to, to, to the appeal court. And the district court first ruled in favor of the Chinese Association, but I think the appeal court over reversed the order and ruled in favor of SEC. And when it comes, you ask me why the American government in year 1940 and 1941, when they were actually, you know, throwing money at the nationalist government and the SEC, you know, were actually put restraints on this. My understanding is that um, SEC and uh, Secretary of Treasury are, are different entities. And I think SEC uh, report directly to the Congress, isn't it? So I think, you know, on their view, they represent the interest of American public who borrowed from foreign foreign countries. So they adhere, they adhere to the uh, Johnson Act. And that's why they require those bonds to be registered. And they, you know, they, they, restrain the activities of the Chinese Association. Oh, you are so much more optimistic about the rule-following tendencies of different agencies and institutions within the U.S. government. I, I am uh, much more skeptical. I, I think that <laughs> there was a great deal more going on. If the president uh, called up the head of the SEC, especially at that period of time where the SEC had only recently been formed and said, uh, this is a borrowing that we want to happen. I'm 100% sure that would have happened. Uh, probably the district court did not get the message, but the circuit court got some kind of message saying we don't want this to happen. But th th there is, uh, I haven't dug into this. And I, you know, even though I taught securities law ma many, many years ago, I, I don't know the details, but I, I've talked to my friend, Adam Pritchard, who is a historian, who says that the papers in the courts are quite interesting, but that almost nobody has dug into the archival record of this case. It, it is taught 
as a very conventional, formal application of the rules case. Uh, but once one understands the history, and of course you understand the history better than anyone, especially given the context, Israel was trying to borrow at the uh, roughly, not ru exactly the same time, but soon thereafter, also issuing affinity bonds, uh, also yeah. through local associations. And the SEC is quite cooperative with them in terms of enabling them uh, to do their borrowing. So it, it as my mother would say, um, there's something black in the lentils here. Uh, but um, <laughs> I, 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 I want to give uh, Mark uh, the, the final say since I know he, he must just be beating his head against the wall that I managed to, to throw in affinity bonds uh, in here, although they are part of the story that almost nobody uh, knows about. So uh, Still, he I, promised he would never talk about them again. I know, I not, know, I know. He is I, not a person whose word can be trusted, <laughs> apparently. It's, not it's called limited. affinity. It's affinity. The affinity yeah. bonds. Oh, yeah. That, it's, <laughs> it's such a dreary topic. Uh, do you think you've got number of my matters here? Because as far as I can see, that only about 600,000 were collected. And then 600,000 collected in 1940 compared to the 50 million, multiple 50 million loans extended from the American government is like nothing. And then so do you think it is possible that this can be sacrificed? This is a small piece that can be sacrificed, sacrificed to make someone, some people happy. And then, but meanwhile, preserve the big horse. Yeah. Elliot, as we close, um, uh, I, I want to just uh, ask you to kind of briefly take us from the war's end to the kind of collapse of everything and the nationalist flight um, across the strait, because I think that part of the story still hasn't come quite clear to me as I as I understand it. When the the U.S. concludes the war with Japan, things are actually looking pretty good. The yes. The foreign exchange reserves are high. Um, there's reason for optimism. And then just a few short years later, we have the nationalists decamping with all the gold to Taiwan. So so what is it that that explains the kind of calamitous drop in those those last four years? And can it be linked to the lending, or is it just um is it just the consequence of the civil war? Well, the, the civil war, and then it's, you know, if we if we said what's the financial secret behind the civil war is inflation, is that people are losing faith. People call civil war, they call people's war. They say the communists won a people's war. True. And then, then which also means the nationalists lost the people's war, or they, they lost, you know, the people's war because they make a people's money completely worthless. So how is that related to, I, I actually think it has a huge, you know, a big deal related to the lending. It's because the, the dollar, yeah, you probably, you know, if, if we put us in the shoes of the Chinese in the 1940s, there's only one thing that's internal from 1938, you know, all the way to 1949, 
everything else inflated, everything else become worthless. You lost your belongings, you know, all the all the paper money you 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 hold, you know, become worthless. But there's only one two things internal. One is American dollar, the other is gold. Another is American gold. Yeah. And they all come from American money. So uh, yeah, in my opinion, is that American dollar at that time has really had this single one opportunity to really stop inflation. And then if actually inflation was stopped, the nationalists will still be in power. And then it will be very different. There will not be Korean War, you know, Vietnam War, and then there will not be China and Taiwan right now. And so many things will not happen. So that's why, in my opinion, is I want to write the story, you know, especially, you know, the, the, the 500 million, you know, cash loan and also lend the story. And I want to describe how, you know, 1 billion, 1.6 billion dollars and they were not used. Yeah, how they just vanish, vanished there. And then also because just once and I also recently noticed that they try to start a land list aid for Taiwan, you know. Bill was actually making house right now because people say, you know, what if China invade Taiwan now? We need to start, you know, take preemptive act, land this act for Taiwan. But I wonder if they do it, if they're going to read history, did they realize Taiwan, the Republic of China has not settled their land list account 50 years ago? Yeah, because land list account, they are taxpayers' money. And when you look at congressional record all the way from FDR to Lyndon Johnson, Every six months, there will be a congressional report. You know, they will try to say, this is a landless money who has paid us back. And out of the 40 recipients from 1942 all the way to 1965, 23 years of congressional report, and you see one after another country pay back. But at the end of the day, in the final account, they have two countries unsettled, USSR and Republic of China. And USSR settled in 1972, so which means China slash Taiwan remain the only one that hasn't settled its land lease account, then if a new list, new land lease ad is going to come out for Taiwan, what's going to happen to, you know, how are I going to talk about history there? Well, Elliot, thank you so much for joining us. I'm, I am really looking forward to reading the next chapters of the book. Um, uh, I've learned so much from this conversation. So thanks so much for coming on again. No, thank you for this wonderful opportunity.